Hey there, it's Sarah Shaw, and welcome to this episode. I'm here with Trina Turk today, and she has been in business since 1995. She is a long-time fashion designer, and she started her brand, Trina Turk, way back in 95 with her uh, husband, Jonathan, and they have a contemporary women's line, which I'm sure you're really aware of. And she's really evolved into an iconic lifestyle brand. They celebrate the California style. They, she designs up to 11 annual collections a year. They sell ready-to-wear, accessories, swimwear, activewear, the new Mr. Turk line. They do all kinds of residential decor and textiles, pillows. Um, they've introduced footwear, handbags, and even jewelry recently. And her designs are infused with bold signature prints, which I just love, um, super dynamic hues, and her modern and optimistic outlook really melds the best of the classic American design with California confidence, because she's based in California, and really incorporates beautiful fabrics, impeccable quality, and really an effortless kind of beachy, kind of carefree experience and glamour. So hey, Trina, welcome. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to talk to you. So Trina and I have known each other for a really long time, way back in our early days in LA. And so talk a little bit about how you first got into fashion. Like what's your background and did you have any kind of training at all? Sure. I um, started when I was a kid, really when my mom taught me how to sew around um, age 11. And she was a great seamstress. And in fact, she was very creative and she made a lot of different things. Sewing was just one of the things that she did. Um, But she taught me how to sew. And she also taught me that after I had been sewing for a little while, she, she showed me that the pattern, you know, as you bought the pattern from the fabric store. I mean, I don't really think people sew at home as much as um, as everybody used to, but you know, you could go to the fabric store, you would buy a pattern, and she showed me that the pattern could be manipulated, and you didn't really have to follow sort of, you didn't have to color inside the lines, I guess you could say. You could sort of do, you could make, you customize. So mm-hmm. I think that my customization at that point was very kind of like basic, but she kind of introduced me to this idea that you were not really necessarily beholden to whatever was on the cover of that pattern envelope. So um, it might have been a little bit advanced, I guess, initially, but I think that when, once she told me that, it was sort of like, wow, that's really cool. So I, I decided I wanted to be a fashion designer. I don't think at the time I really knew what that meant, but I decided that you know I love clothes, I love putting clothes together, I love fabric, and I wanted to be a fashion designer. So in high school, they allowed me to do sort of special classes where all I really had to do was just show up and make things um, on my sewing machine. So I did that you know, for a couple years in high school, and I studied apparel design at the University of Washington and got a bachelor's degree in apparel design. Um, that, that, that part of the University of Washington no longer exists, but um, at the time, I got that degree, and my first job was at Britannia which was a jeans company that was based in Seattle. And short, I was you know, hired as a design assistant. And shortly thereafter, um, I was traveling to Asia a lot to help designers put the collection together. And it was a great, amazing learning experience. And 
From there, I moved to Southern California in the mid-'80s and started to work for OP, which is Ocean Pacific, the iconic surfboard brand. And mm-hmm. it was at OP that I really learned a lot about printed textiles. And we did a lot of prints. Um, prints were very integral to the brand of, you know, the brand DNA of kind of the surf company LP. So that was re- where I really learned about how to do prints. So from there, I went, and I went on and worked for other companies. Um, I worked for a total of 12 years prior to starting Trina Turk um, as a designer you know, and a design director um, in other companies. The, the, what happened was that I was primarily working in the junior market. And I didn't really, like I wasn't feeling it. Like I was doing it and I was learning, but it wasn't like what I wanted to wear or what I was interested in wearing. And so I talked about, I talked about you know, starting my own company for a while. And my husband, Jonathan, who was a fashion stylist at the time, was very encouraging. He just kept saying, well, you know, why don't you quit talking about it and why don't you just do it? And so I talked about it probably for a good four years before I quit my job and decided to just try it. His, his thing was, you know, if you, if you just keep talking about it and you never try it, then later on when you're still working for somebody else, you're going to say, I wonder if I should have tried to start my own company. Mm-hmm. So anyway, you know, there's like securities associated with working for somebody else. You of know, you have your you have your salary and you have your health insurance and you have your 401k and all these kind of like security blankets that um, after working, you know, in kind of a corporate situation for 12 years, I felt like I was somewhat, you know, just kind of like jumping off a cliff into the unknown. And so that's why it took me so long to psych myself up for it. But um, anyway, that's sort <laughs> I of, bet. that was my background prior to <sighs> And I hope that answer was not too long. No, it was great. And, and it's, so, it's so funny because so, so many people that you speak to who are in fashion now don't have any, like don't even have a sew. Like both my grandmothers were in the fashion industry in the 20s and 30s, 40s, 50s in New York, and neither one of them knew how to sew or drape or do anything. They just knew how to design. So it's actually really refreshing and different, I think, to hear that, you know, that you learned how to sew with your mom when you were a kid and, and that you actually parlayed that into a real career and a successful career at that, you know, from the time you were a little child. I think that that's, um, that's, not, as, that's not that common um, within any kind of, you know, in any kind of business, but let alone in fashion. Um, so what, what were kind of some of the, when you first decided to, you know, quit the, <laughs> quit your job and leave your paycheck behind. Um, what were some of the things that you encountered when you first started your business? I mean, you know, it's, I think it's one thing to kind of dream about having your own company and knowing all the steps you're supposed to take, right? Because you've been in fashion for so many years, you know, knowing what you're supposed to do, you know, when buyers buy and when the shows are and all of that kind of stuff. But I'm sure it was probably different when you actually stepped out and did it on your own. Yeah, I made the mistake of thinking that I knew everything. And <laughs> what I realized really quickly was that I only knew about design and merchandising and a little bit about sales. Um, I had been in many appointments with buyers working on you know, 
exclusive projects for different stores for the different when I was working for other companies. So I did have a little bit of exposure to being in a showroom and working with buyers. But there's a whole other side of the industry um, that I really kind of just had to figure out as I went along. Um, things came up pretty much daily in those early days that I did not have a clue like what it was or what I should be, you know, how to approach it. And that's when I really dug into my Rolodex at the time, which nobody has anymore. But the one thing I that do. I has, the one thing that has been great about, you know, working for other people for 12 years was that I had a pretty wide array of contacts. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, things came up. I mean, this might this might be really silly, but early on, somebody said, "Well, you should get a factor." And I said, what's a factor? And, you know, a factor is a financial institution that lets you borrow against your receivables so that you can make, you know, make the close. But I literally Mm -hmm. did not even know what a factor was. I didn't know what the concept of a factor was. So I, um, so, you know, one day I was getting a factor. The next day somebody said, well, you need to get, you know, a customs broker and a freight forwarder. And I was kind of like, what? But, you know, I called my friends who were involved in that part of the industry, and people were, people were very generous in kind of helping me along by giving me the next person to call to sort of resolve the issue. So I was, initially I was producing 100% in Los Angeles, and um, so, you know, I was really running around L.A. a lot, like picking up fabric, dropping off fabric, picking up trim, dropping off trim. I mean, it was, a, it was just me. So it was a lot of kind of physical transportation of pieces and parts of things from one place to the other. And, I mean, the, the factor and the customs broker and the freight forwarder, I mean, those are just three examples of probably 50 things like that that I have right. to do figure out early on. And I think I was a little bit um, maybe overconfident when I first started that I kind of, oh, you know, I know how to do this. And the truth of the matter was there was so much I didn't know. And I just kind of like every day like something would come up and I would just try and figure it out one by one and like, you know, kind of check them off the list. So um, those early days were pretty intense and daunting. And when I think about them now, I think, how did I even do that? Because I was working out of my house. And it was, it was kind of crazy. But somehow, you know, I think that 1995 was a, a more forgiving time for a startup company. Um, you know, I think things were just less corporate than they are now. And so mm-hmm. once I got a sample line together, you know, and got it into some showrooms, I, I think that, you know, store buyers were sort of willing to take a look. Um, well, without any other, any. Go ahead. Sorry, I was gonna. I was just gonna add too that you know, just a reminder <laughs> to all the millennials listening who've never grown up without the internet that we didn't have the the internet really back then. It was just kind of getting started, and you know, there was no Google at all, and you know, we had Yahoo Search, but most buyers and people who were in the fashion industry didn't even weren't even on email. Some of them until even 2000. And so that it wasn't like people were 
coming in and looking at your collection or you were emailing them about it and then they were quickly rushing off to look at the next email and compare your prices and do things. It was actually all done in showrooms you know, with people meeting and talking and looking and touching and feeling. Yeah, I mean that was one of the um, exercises that I did early on was once I had a sample line put together, I really couldn't do online research. Um, so I found out, you know, I would shop the stores, I would, um, I would figure out who I wanted to hang next to, like which brands I wanted to hang next to. And I can't even really remember how I found out who carried which brands because like you're saying, like you couldn't you couldn't just Google it. Right. Like, <laughs> I'm trying to remember like how I even figured that out. Um, and I used to look in a lot of magazines and like see, you know, because they they had I I found magazines were a little bit more informative back then because it wasn't like just go to the website, you know, it was, you know, these can be found at this store and you know people weren't crediting their website back then so it also gave you the names of more boutiques and things that you could look at so it kind of made finding stores a little easier but that I don't know somehow it seemed like I could when I had my handbag line it was always easier to look in magazines to find other brands you know because I used to look for clothing lines you know like which clothing lines are in which stores and that I wanted to hang next you know be in the same stores that carried those brands so right. that that was how I did it. I don't. Know. I mean, somehow I figured out who the showrooms were in New York who represented mm -hmm. similar brands, and so I sent out a bunch of packages, you know, of basically kind of a line sheet and some photographs of the collection, and maybe kind of like an inspiration board. And I sent it out. I maybe sent out like six or seven packages to different wholesale showrooms in New York that were multi-line showrooms that represented multiple brands. So I was terrified about sort of going to New York and trying to find somebody to be my sales rep. But you know, I knew that I had to do it. And I was actually mm -hmm. pleasantly surprised with how, um, how helpful people were. I, um, you know, being from the West Coast, and I mean, I've traveled to New York frequently because I've been working in the industry for a while, but this was kind of a different thing. And I was thinking, oh, you know, they're going to be really mean and they're, they're, gonna, um, they're going to, you know, it's going to be a difficult, a difficult process. But it was difficult mainly because I was literally, you know, I had one of those rolling boxes with my sample line in it. And after I had... Yeah initially sent these packages, I made appointments with several of the showrooms, and I spent a week in New York, actually in July, it was really hot, like wheeling <laughs> sample line around from one showroom to the other, trying to find, you know, trying to find the right person to represent my collection. Mm -hmm. And at the end of the week, I had three possibilities, and I didn't really, I didn't really have any way to kind of like gauge which one was better than the other. So I kind of just went with my gut, and I actually left that sample line with um, a company called Cohen Berta, um, which you know represented multiple collections. So mm -hmm. they were going to represent me in New York, and then I came back to LA and did exactly the same thing with a second sample line. So I had two sample lines, and I found a, a showroom in LA called Lori Hassan. Lori Hassan still exists um, as a multi-line showroom. And so they, Lori Hassan and Cohen Berta were the, the sales representatives that launched um, 
tuna turk. And I did sell, I noticed on the questions, I did sell a couple, I did put, you know, show the line to a couple people and get a couple orders personally myself, mm-hmm. um, which were um, Fred Siegel and American Rag, which mm-hmm. are both stores in Los Angeles. But um, that was not, like I never intended to try and sell it myself because there was just too much else to do. So, yeah. you know, I got I got the showrooms fairly quickly, and um, they were great. I mean, I that very first collection, I got into Barney's, I got into Saks, um, I got into Fred Siegel, but I could get to take credit for that one myself because I was the one who showed the line. Um, <laughs> Um, so you know, it was it was pretty. It 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 was sort of a very. I mean, it was a 15-piece collection. It was silk dupioni. Um, it was very bright, vivid colors. And one thing that I think kind of sort of set us off on the path that we're still on is, I had done these giant photo prints of flowers, and mm-hmm. we had I had had them printed on, like screen printed kind of placement printed on the cut pieces of these silk dresses. And so the kind of print and color part of our brand DNA was sort of established with that first collection. I mean, obviously, it's evolved a lot since then, but people really responded to the color and they responded to the print. So that kind of like set the tone for where we went after that. And um, when I think about it now, I think it's, I don't know, kind of interesting. But that's yeah, how it definitely. all played out. Yeah, well, I mean, and you had so, I mean, you were mentioning before that like when you weren't worked at OP and I don't know where else you worked in those 12 years in fashion that you learned a lot about printing, you know, and so that, you know, maybe that, you know, may, may have had something that led you down that line, you know, to, to be yeah. able to, to, to have that opportunity just because I know, you know, it, printing printing can be, um, can be really tricky, especially for people who don't know and who aren't experienced with it. Um, and it was really clever to, to do placement printing because I don't, I don't really remember anybody else doing anything like that before yeah, you started that doing was, it. The reason why I knew about that was because I, you know, from working for, for OP, you know, we did a lot of T-shirts, like you know, just sort of printed T-shirts with graphics mm-hmm. on them. So as opposed to printing, you know, multiple like rolls of yardage which there are minimums involved i just like went to like t-shirt screen printers and had them screen print you know pieces kind of the way you would print a t-shirt except it was sort right. of at a much higher level so and the fabric was different and it wasn't you know a blank t-shirt it was sort of this cut piece of the dress which was kind of a little bit scary because if the printing got messed up that means we had already cut the silk and the silk right. wasn't cheap. So yeah. yeah, there was a little bit of risk involved there, but for the most part it worked out okay. Well it must have. <laughs> uh, yes, clearly it did. Um, how how did you how did you end up going from your you know from, from placement printing like that to printing yardage? Well you know, doing... I mean, early on I was sort of at the mercy of um, choosing prints that were on somebody's line. And I, re- I quickly discovered that the European mills have much lower minimums. And I could print as little as, you know, honestly, I could print as little as 100 yards if I wanted to. The only problem with that was 
that the smaller you order, you know, the more surcharges got piled on top. Mm-hmm. And so most of the European mills will print 300 yards without a surcharge. And in the early days, 300 yards was a daunting amount of fabric. But, of course. you know, things, I don't know, things kind of like moved along fairly quickly and pretty soon 300 yards was not as daunting as it was at the beginning. Um, you know, of course, you still don't get your best price on, on um, prints until you're printing much larger quantities. And, you know, usually the more you print, the more, you know, you can negotiate on the price. Um, with European mills, 300 yards is really a production minimum. Um, with mills in Korea and China, you know, the minimums could be much higher. They could be 1,000 or they could be 3,000 yards. Right. Whatever. So, right. so, you know, you, you, I think that just the main thing that I figured out early on is that there, when you're working with the European mills, you are not faced with the minimum issues that you would be faced with if you were trying to source cheaper, well, you know, the Asian fabric tends to be generally cheaper, um, mm-hmm. but the minimums are much higher. So, you know, when, you, when you're sourcing European fabric, you're paying a lot more per yard, but you have the flexibility of not having to buy these huge minimums. Right. And, so you can do you smaller, know, more, more detailed things or just smaller collections or something that's more special too. Yeah, and um, so anyhow, that was, you know, that was just sort of like as the business sort of slowly and steadily grew, the 300-yard minimum, which once seemed so daunting, kind of like <laughs> wasn't as daunting anymore. And, right. you know, now we print everywhere. I mean, we print, in, um, we print in China, we print in Korea, we print in France, we print in Italy. And, you know, generally the prices out of China are the best. But, mm-hmm. And I have to say that, you know, the, when it comes to printing, it's not necessarily true that the European printing is better. It isn't. I mean, we, we have, we, I think some of the best printing we do is actually out of Korea. I, I thought you were going to say that. <laughs> yeah, they, they do make beautiful fabric over there yeah. <laughs> in Korea. Yeah. Um, and, and do you manufacture in, in the United States now, or do you manufacture overseas? We, we probably manufacture, I would say, 40% um, in the U.S., 40 to 50, and then the rest in China. We've dabbled a little bit in India. We do some of our men's shirts out of Portugal, um, but it's primarily in L.A. and in China. It's nice to keep some stuff close to home. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, especially when there's, you know, I mean, you know, there can be all kinds of things, you know, 9-11 or how that big Han shipping company, you know, just is going bankrupt now and everybody's stuff is stuck offshore. So I think it's an important lesson to, you know, to be able to be a little diversified in where your things are made and how they get into this country and all those kinds of things, kind of how as we get bigger and bigger and more spread out across the world, sometimes I think you got to bring a few things home so that you, you know, can have things in case of emergency or, or things that are out of your control, you know, with transportation and things like that. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, the whole thing, the whole thing is fairly complex, but the, the, I mean, having like some of it imported and some of it here in L.A., but one of the advantages to producing in Los Angeles is 
that we can turn things around quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, usually if you're buying stuff from Asia, you know, it's like a 90 to 120 day process to actually get your goods. And if we're cutting and selling in LA, we have our own cutting facility. So we can cut and we can probably turn something, something that we've already fit and the pattern is already established. We could probably turn it around in two weeks in LA. That's amazing. Yeah. And so, and, that, and that's, know, that's amazing to be able great. to have that. Yeah. I mean, the thing is, is that there's certain kind of things that LA can make, and there are other kinds of things that you probably wouldn't want to make here. For example, we do a lot of silks, and we do a lot of silk um, crepe de chine blouses in solids and in prints, and dresses too. And generally, the quality of a silk crepe de chine garment is better when it's made out of China, made you know in China, than when we try and make it here. There's you know the Chinese and silk have gone hand in hand mm-hmm. for thousands and thousands, thousands. of years, and they just yeah. have the hand to sew silk. And we, yeah. do, work with, we do work with Chinese contractors. Um, our office is in Alhambra, California, which is close to, which is in the San Gabriel Valley, and the San Gabriel Valley is the home of a big Chinese population in Southern California. So there are Chinese contractors in our area, but... Um, even, you know, it's not China. So we, sew, we, we tend to sew in L.A. the styles that are a little bit less complex and a little bit easier to put together. That makes total sense. Um, let's go back to a little bit further way back. Um, so once you got your showrooms and you were, you know, kind of plugging along and starting to get more sales and, you know, getting into stores, um, how, what kind of a role did PR start to play for you? Did you do some of that yourself? Did they just, you know, did magazines find you in, you know, in these stores and just write about you, you know, by, by chance? Or in, and how did that really affect the growth of your business once you started to get some PR? I think that what ha- er, very early on, I did not have a PR company, and I was not really, I was too busy to even think about PR. But I think being in Fred Siegel, which was a super influential store at that time, and also in Barney's, um, people just bought the stuff and wore it. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't celebrity seating or anything as sort of well thought out as that. It was just mm-hmm. that either stylists bought it and put it on their clients, or people just bought it and wore it and were photographed. It wasn't a lot, and to be honest, I'm trying to think of like who the people were who wore it and who were <laughs> photographed right now, and I can't even think of anybody other than Gwen Stefani, actually. Um, <laughs> she, I remember I had a photo of her in, um, in one of our floral kind of 50s-style dresses, which I don't really think she would wear now. It was kind of more when she was in like her rockabilly mode. So, mm-hmm. um, so anyhow... You know, I think that people just found the product and wore it and, or bought it. And so it was, it was very organic in that way. And I think that, that I think organic is even better than having sort of it placed by celebrity seating. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think it was, I mean, I think it had a part in, you know, the business growing. Um, I think it was, you know, I don't think it was critical to the business growing. I think it, it helped. 
And and so and then how far how far into your business did you decide to bring on a, a PR team, you know, and hire a firm to kind of further the further the uh well, I had a woman um, who's no longer in PR who was just sort of like interested in the brand and who was working um, out of our New York showroom. And you know, she was just an individual um, who had had some PR experience and she just kind of wanted to try doing this thing herself. So it was sort of, it was not, I would say it was not sort of like a high-powered PR company. It was just Kara Doors doing her thing, and I think you know she got it placed here and there. And I think you know for for what I was paying her, she was she did a good job. Um, I can't even remember like when we actually went to an official PR company. To be honest with you, um, I I don't even know when that was. I, mean, I guess do you think I think like it was five probably to ten around years in. Two, 2000, we started working mm-hmm. with Siren PR in New York, mm-hmm. um, and then I guess it was probably around 2008 or 2009 that we switched to um, a company called Linda Gaunt Communications in New York, who we're still with. She must be doing a good job then, because <laughs> yeah. she's still with her. Yeah, yeah, I think yeah. I mean, I, you 2009, know, you, you 2010, something like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and do you feel, do you feel like, do you guys, do you see, you know, cause your stuff's in magazines all the time and now, and you know, do you, do you notice like surges on your website or in your stores? You know, I don't know exactly, you know, if you guys push people to your stores or to your website when you get uh, magazine placements now. Um, but do you notice, you know, sales increase? I mean, is it, it obviously seems worth it to keep, to keep your publicity firm. So it must be increasing your sales. I mean, in the old days, we actually saw much more of a, um, an actual effect on sales, not from the Vogue or the Glamours or the fashion magazines. We saw much more from magazines like O or um, like kind of like, or I mean, I guess, I guess I would say, yeah, like O for some reason, the Oprah magazine. Mm-hmm would drive sales more than like a Vogue or a InStyle, which is kind of weird. Like I think it's counterintuitive. But mm-hmm. now I feel like it, magazines don't even really matter that much anymore. It's more about social media. And mm-hmm. I, think that the, I think that bloggers drive more business than the magazines do by far. I feel like the magazines, you know, they used to be important. And they, I mean, to be honest, they're not anymore. Yeah. So you guys concentrate more on getting bloggers to do reviews and wear your stuff and take pictures of themselves, you know, because some of them have millions of influencers following, you know, they're, they're an influencer to millions of people who are following. Yeah, them. I mean, we're, you know, the, it's basically like just a shift in marketing dollars. I mean, you can spend marketing dollars on print advertising, which I don't really think people are doing anymore unless they're, you know, a big European brand with a giant marketing budget. Sure. Um, but, you know, the, it's, it's just as expensive to work with some of the bloggers with huge followings as it is to do print advertising. So, I mean, we're, we're, not, we're not spending tons of money on marketing. So um, we have some blogger seeding programs, but they've been fairly small scale. And, mm-hmm. you know, I think that most of it is it's, it's more 
happening organically than us saying, you know, we're going to pay this ex-blogger, you know, a lot of money to do 25 posts or whatever the deal right. would be. Right. And, and do you find that, you know, because obviously <laughs> back in the 90s, there was in early 2000s, there was no social media. Uh, I remember when Friendster came out, and I was like, wow, that looks really lame. And <laughs> I'm never going to do that. And, um, you know, and then quickly all the rest of you know, Facebook launched after that. And you know, do, you, do you find that, that social media itself, I mean like the actual you know, Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and things like that have been instrumental at, at all in growing your brand in the last five years? I feel like honestly we don't have – we could be doing much better on all of those platforms. Mm-hmm. Um, we have really been working on getting our e-commerce site straightened out and working and you know, user-friendly. And now that it is, I think that that's the next thing is to really work more on all these social media things because I feel like we're, we're behind in that area. Mm-hmm. I mean like Instagram, mm-hmm. I do Instagram myself for Trina Turk um, just because I think it's fun and I'm a visual yeah. person. And I get it a lot more than I get Twitter. And I think I'm better at it than I would be at Twitter. Yeah. Um, but you know, I'm like out, in the, out and about. And um, I think part of my job is to just observe the world. So Instagram sure. is a great way to do that and share it with people who are interested. So the Instagram is something that I'm doing myself. Um, at Trina Turk. And, oh, I love um, to hear that. <laughs> the other stuff, our company Facebook page and you know Pinterest and Twitter and all these other things, I'm not really personally involved in them. We have people in the company who are doing them, but um, like I said, I think that you know one of our one of our initiatives for going forward is to really kind of like tighten up what we're doing and get kind of a full social media strategy set up. My husband Jonathan, who designs um, the Mr. Turk collection now, um, he does a lot more social media personally himself for Mr. Turk than I do for Trina Turk, um, mm-hmm. who's really into it. Well, he's a photographer. You know, he he does all of our photography. He he was a stylist when we started our company, um, but at the, in the early days, he was working full time or more than full time as a stylist and didn't really start actually working at the company until 2008. So from, wow. you know, he was, he was working as a stylist and then he transitioned into working as a, a photographer. And so he was working as a freelance stylist and a freelance photographer for all of those early years. Um, and then in 2008, he um, started designing Mr. Turk and as our e-commerce grew, he, and he was shooting everything for our e-com site and all of our lifestyle images and you know social media images, it kind of like consumed his his, his freelance <laughs> photography career. So, yeah. you know it, it's sort of incredible how much photography you need or how right. you know. So it, and he since he also started doing Mr. Turk, he just kind of like is now pretty much work. He has been working here full time since 2008. That's that must be really fun. <laughs> yeah, I mean, um, you know, it's fun and it's not fun because we tend to take work home with us, which is not a yeah. good thing. You know, right. at some point you kind of have to stop talking about the fabric. But exactly. um, 
But, um, <laughs> you know, it's a creative partnership too. So there, you know, we, I know what he's thinking and he knows what I'm thinking and I think that mm-hmm. we um, are usually on the same wavelength. That's great. Do you, do you still design everything yourself? I do not. Um, I, I don't sit around and sketch styles anymore. Um, we have a design team here in Alhambra. We have two designers um, and two assistant designers. Um, we have two textile designers because the prints are such a big part of our, um, our collections. Sure. that we have two people that are solely working on prints. Um, and so that's a team of about six. We have two people who work on fabric research and development and um, a merchandiser. So there's a pretty big team working on our um, Latrina Turk apparel, uh, ready-to-wear, and dresses. And then there's a smaller team that Jonathan works with um, for Mr. Turk. Um, but that's basically the team. I mean, on the many of the other categories that we do um, are actually licenses. So mm. I work with design teams at, for example, our swimwear is designed um, and manufactured by a company called Manhattan Beachwear. And that's, you know, we work with them very closely and, um, you know, kind of meet with them regularly to see um, what prints they're talking about, and you know, if we're going to share a print between ready-to-wear and and swimwear, and so you know, part of what I do now is I'm I'm pretty much jumping from one category to another, and working with different teams who are working on different things. I mean, the ready-to-wear and dresses that we manufacture ourselves, of course, is the thing that I'm closest to. You know, mm-hmm. I'm definitely involved in. Um, Maybe my design team might say I'm too heavily involved in directing <laughs> them of what I would like it to be like. Um, sure. But, you know, I mean, it's not really, it's, it's, a, it's a tricky thing to work with creative people and allow them to be creative while at the same time kind of keeping everything going in the direction of what the brand is supposed to be. Um, of course. You know, I think that's one of my biggest challenges is, you know, I, I love our design team, but a lot of times I know that I drive them crazy because I think <laughs> that that's not really the way it should be. And mm-hmm. so, um, you know, I guess they tolerate me, but there has to be some kind of overall vision. Otherwise, of brand, the brand becomes meaningless. And I, the one thing that I think after you know, 20, almost 21 years in business is that we really have established like a brand identity. And I think that's super important in a sea of companies and brands and communication and merchandise out there. You know, if you don't have a brand identity, it's very difficult to distinguish yourself from all the noise out there. So, you know, we've become associated with these certain touch points like California and optimism and print and color and Palm Springs and all those things I think are very helpful, um, you know, to distinguish us from, from our competitors and from all of the other options that people have out there. Yeah, I, I guess it sounds kind of, well, it sounds, it sounds really fun. Like you're actually like you've moved into this position of, you know, of overseer and, you know, and the figurehead of the company. 
right? And you've, you know, you're not, you're not having to uh, run around LA and go, you know, see the, I mean, I'm sure you, you still might go visit your factories or do things like that, but it's not a necessity like it was when you first started. And so time management is probably, you know, your biggest nemesis right now. You know, it's yeah, that's like, you know, definitely juggling true. all of these things. Yeah. Um, I think that doing um, Instagram on top of it. <laughs> one of the things that probably drives everybody crazy here is that at the very beginning, I literally did everything. So, you know, I did order entry. I packed and shipped. I, you know, ordered sample fabric. I ordered production fabric. I ordered zippers. I went to the factory. So when people sort of complain about how they have too much work, I'm not very sympathetic at all. <laughs> and and I, you know, I, I think back and, and I say, well, it couldn't it can be that bad because I used to do literally everything. And I mean, of course, the company was much smaller then. So I think sure. that I'm, I'm, you know, I think I'm giving people a hard time sometimes. But the truth of the matter is that, you know, if you, if you want to start a company and you don't have major financial backing, which I did not, you know, you're going to do things that you never even dreamed of doing. And of some of them you're going to like and some of them you're not going to like. And I still do a lot of things every week that are not my favorite things to do. But, you know, it's not like this is some giant corporation. We're still a very relatively small entrepreneurial company and everybody here wears multiple hats and does, you know, multiple things. Where in a larger company, you know, I think that, that um, the team, people on the team, they kind of get much more siloed into doing this one specific thing. Whereas right. at a smaller company, you know, you kind of get exposed to doing more than you might at a bigger company just because there's nobody else to do it. So you end up doing multiple tasks. Right. And don't you think too, I mean, I know for myself, I mean, I was the same way when I started my handbag line, and, but that that is actually your education, right? You know how to do every single job that you're hiring people to do, so it actually gives you the opportunity to hire the best person you can because you know the questions to ask or you see their potential and you can actually say, okay, here, let's sit down. I'm going to show you how to do this job because I, I think you can. And so it actually gives you a leg up over, I think, over people who are higher in hiring positions who've never had those jobs before because you're, you know, if you hired someone as, you know, your, I don't know, right, your, your office manager or something, right, or company manager who's going to hire employees for you and they've never done that job, it's going to be harder for them to see through, you know, the BS that the person's giving them, yeah, I can do that, you know, and you'd know the questions to ask and you'd be able to read, you know, kind of see through the murky water and know if the person really could do the job because you actually had done it yourself. Yeah, I mean, I, I have to say, like, it's a, some of these things that I did, you know, that was 20 years ago, so everything's changed. So, I mean, I have a familiarity with them. You know, right. Could I, could I jump in, to, you know, jump in to the the chair at any desk in my company and do that job? Now, probably not. But at least I know kind of the concept of what it is. Exactly. And also over the years, you've been hiring, you know, over the last 20 years when you first started hiring people, you know, things, were, things worked differently. But then as you hired new people to replace the old people, it may have been in a, you know, to do a job a different way or, you know, to do it in the 2.0 version, you know, and that, and that you 
you know, even though you couldn't necessarily do someone's job 100% now, at least you know the essence of the job and what it takes to, to do it, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and so what, um, how, how did you, I just want to ask you a couple more questions and then I'll let you go. Okay. What, um, how, how did you know, like, when it was a good time to start your own stores, you know, because I, you know, and just wanted to kind of go back to one thing that you were saying that you had just kind of, you're redoing your website and making it more user-friendly and, um, you know, and wanting to, I, I assume from that reason, you're trying to drive more sales to your, to your website. You know, and so many people that I talk to, either clients of mine or, you know, people I, um, I meet in the fashion industry, you know, they're always so concerned and worried about competing with stores. You know, oh, God, I don't want to sell my stuff online. You know, I don't want to push it because stores are going to get mad, you know, or not want to carry my line. And so do you, do you have any, you know, anything to say about that, you know, for, for you guys or in general, kind of how you're, you're handling your own because I know you've had your own stores for years, and, and obviously department stores and boutiques that you sell to have had to deal with that, you know. Um, but how, how do you feel like, you know, your website and having your own stores, you know, plays into, you know, people's kind of messed up thoughts about, about how it can hurt your sales or not? Um, well, at this point, I think that having your own website and having your own stores is a way for a brand to be in control of their own destiny. Um, the department store landscape has changed dramatically since I started in 1995. You know, people are just not shopping at department stores the way they used to. And I think that you know, when you hear the news about layoffs at department stores, it's, it's happening, it's, it has happened fairly frequently in the last few years where a lot of the department stores are closing stores and laying people off. And it's just because the way people shop has changed so much that, you know, there's no way we could run the business the way we did 10 years ago now. It's just like mm-hmm. the landscape is changing as we speak. So it's, really, it's been really interesting to see the evolution over the years. And I think one of the reasons why we're still around and many of the people who started companies at the same time I did are not still around because we have our own stores and our own website, because at least then, you know, you have control over that part of your distribution. Um, you know, you said, how did I know when it was time to open a store? I mean, I didn't know when it was time to open a store. <laughs> I just saw this, I just saw this, um, I'm interested in mid-century architecture, you know, kind of as a hobby. And my husband and I had bought a house out in Palm Springs, and we were out there, and there was a vintage modern furniture store that we would shop in. And I just loved, loved, loved the, the building and the space that the store was in. And every time we'd be in there, I would say, oh, my gosh, you know, if this space ever became available, I would love to have a store here. And um, I didn't know at the time that the building was designed by Albert Frey, who's one of the most important architects who did mid-century buildings in Palm Springs. At that time, I, when we first were in there, I didn't really realize that. I just felt like it felt good in there. So mm-hmm. then, you know, that space actually did become available. And um, we actually signed the lease on September 10th, um, 2001, which the next day, of course, was September 11th, 2001. And, we, you know, that was not a good time for 
retail. But yeah. I think because we were, you know, because it was out in the desert and it was a little bit removed in a way from, I don't know, somehow we, somehow the, we opened, you know, we opened this in the spring of 2002 and that store sort of took on a life of its own. Um, it kind of coincided with the renaissance of Palm Springs, mm-hmm. and we became very much associated with Palm Springs. People think I live out there and work out there, <laughs> which I don't. Um, yeah. <laughs> but there was no—I mean, there was no real, you know, marketing or scientific reason why we opened that store. It was very organic. It was just like I love this space. This space is available. It's not that expensive since it's in the desert. You know, let's create a beautiful showcase for our product. And worst case scenario, you know, it'll be a marketing tool. And right. maybe we won't make any money, but it'll be really pretty. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> and you like you know, pretty, that, yeah. <laughs> that was, honestly, that was kind of the approach. And yeah. I, I was fortunate enough to work with Kelly Wurstler, who is, has since become sort of a rock star of interior design. Yeah. You know, she designed that interior of our original Palm Springs store, and it's still, I would say, 90% intact, and wow. it still feels great in there, and, you know, she did an amazing job, um, and at the time, you know, I had no idea, you know, she, she's, she's, Really, she's done several books, and she did a few more of our stores after that. Um, but anyway, you know, I, that was sort of just luck that she was available. I could afford her at the time. You know, things have changed in terms of um, whether or not we would be able to have Kelly design a store now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but anyway, you know, that was a long time ago. So, So there was definitely no science involved in opening that store. Mm-hmm. I do think, though, that you, you know, spending time in, a sto- in one of our stores is really interesting, and you get, a, you, you get so much information in really a short period of time. Like I can now, you know, I don't really go to Palm Springs in the summertime, but I start going out there in October, and, you know, like just when I'm driving into town, I can just sort of buzz through the store, maybe spend 15 or 20 minutes and you really, you kind of see what's going on. You see what people are doing. You get sort of a vibe for what's going on. And it's, it's really valuable. And, of course, you get feedback from your teams in the stores about what your customer is gravitating towards. So, right, of course. Yeah, so I think that, you know, that, that direct feedback, that direct line to the customer is also, you know, something that you don't necessarily have um, on the wholesale side, and it, it, right. it's really helpful. I mean, you know, in, in the beginning, I think that wholesale is super important. Like, you know, you have to get your product out there somehow, and opening a store is one option, but I think that if you can do both, it's better. Or hey, yeah, oh, selling sale right. and then segue into doing retail. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I agree. Um, and especially these days too, I think so many people, you know, with um, searching online and then going, in, you know, or people go into stores and they, you know, see your brand in whatever, let's just say at Macy's or, you know, Bloomingdale's or something. And then they, maybe they only carry a small section, a small selection of your, 
of your line and they want to see what else is happening with you. So they go to your website and then they see there's you know, 200 more options and then they end up seeing that you've got stores and oh, lo and behold, they're going to be in you know, Hawaii or Palm Springs or you know, one of the other cities where you have a store and they can actually go and touch and feel the product before they order it online and just you know, either like it or don't like it you know, and possibly send it back. Um, so I think that that's, you know, I think people crave, a, you know, connection these days just with, with the vast uh, internet that there is out there and how many, you know, how so it's so easy to connect with people and find stuff that, but I think especially with clothing, and I think your clothes in particular really warrant touch and feel. You know, I think they're the kind of clothes that you look at and you want to touch and feel it and see how it fits and, you know, see if the print is right for you and, you know, and what it looks like and how your skin looks or, you know, and, and also because you have such an iconic brand and that I think people want to be a part of it. You know, like when you were saying that you, um, you know, with your fabrics and stuff that you've really created this brand, a visual brand, you know, I can't really think of anyone besides like, you know, Poochie, really, you know, who, who, when people saw that fabric, you know, back in the 50s and 60s, you know, and before, knew that it was his, where I think that your fabric really stands out. And people really, you know, people who are aware of your brand, you know, and see someone walking down the street are like, hey, that's, she's wearing a Trina Turk. And it's not, you know, it's not like, oh, is it a Trina or is it a something else? I think it really has a style and a look that people recognize. And I think that's, really special that you were able to do that. Yeah, that's what we're going for. That's what we're trying. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Trying to well, so my, I know it's great. So what's so just to wrap things up, kind of what's next for Trina Turk? What are you guys, you know, what do people have to look forward to? What are what are you guys doing that's that's new for you and that you're excited about? Well, I mean, we we just opened our store in Hawaii, which is at the International Marketplace in Waikiki, which we're very excited about that. Um, We also recently moved our store in um, Miami to a new area on Biscayne Boulevard that's sort of an up-and-coming area. And it reminds me very much of the way Palm Springs was when we first opened our store in Palm Springs. We found a one-story mid-century building and we have sort of multiple storefronts, um, which is something that's been working really well in Palm Springs. So it's kind of like different little shops for um, swimwear and Mr. Turk and items for your home and then the core ready-to-wear and you know, dress collection of Trina Turk. So um, in Palm Springs, we have multiple storefronts and the departments kind of flow into each other. And in Miami and also in Hawaii, we are trying to emulate what we have in Palm Springs because it's been, it's been great for us. And I think that, you know, because we carry swimwear year-round in both men's and women's, it, we, you know, our brand lends itself to these resort type of locations. So, in, you know, going forward into more retail, we're really kind of focusing on looking at sort of resort locales and like where could we have um, another store that kind of works in that resort kind of vibe. Um, The other thing that is going on, which I sort of mentioned a little bit before, is we really need to um, kind of expand on our website and make um, make it kind of tell more of a story about who we are and what we're interested in and where the inspiration comes from. 
Right mm-hmm. now, I, you know, it's primarily a shopping website, and there's not a lot of there's not a lot of color, and there's not a lot of extra there's not a lot of extra information on the the site, and I and I think that that's really something that we need to work on, kind of going hand in hand with social media to really talk about you know where this brand comes from and. Because I do think that you know there's a genuine story that we're here, we're in LA. You know, we love LA, we love mid-century architecture, we love art and design, and all of those things sort of feed into our end product. And there are a lot of inspirations and a lot of stories to tell there. And our current website is not doing a good job of telling those stories. So I would say that you know retail and and sort of like fleshing out the storytelling part of our website are really our two big. Um, to be initiatives. Mm, I love hearing you say that, kind of bringing it home, right? Bringing yeah. It, yeah. You know, bringing, kind of circling back, and even though you're out in other stores all over the country and the world, just concentrating on what you actually can control, right? Your own website and your own stores, you know, and make those more about what your company's about and give people the real experience that they're looking for when they come to find you. Exactly. Um, yeah, I like that. Well, thank you so much for your you know, willingness to share and your story and, um, and talking about you know, the things that you do. And I love that you do your own Instagram. <laughs> and, uh, and I think it's so important. You know, it's funny. I, I always you know, I have a lot of clients who want other people to do their social media for them. And I'm like, you can have other people do it, but you have to do your own Instagram. It's too personal. It's kind of like, you know, um, you know, like never picking out your own underwear or something, <laughs> you know, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's, it comes from the soul, I think, and from the kind of the, you know, the beginning of the business and it has to come from the designer. And so I, I applaud you for sticking with that and doing that on your own. Well, you I guys mean, can find out fun. more. Oh, sorry, go ahead. I think it's fun, so. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, thank you again so much. And you guys can, who are listeners can find out more at trinaturk.com and in all the show notes and everything that we have below the recording. So thank you so much again, and congratulations on opening the new store in Hawaii. Thanks for having me. That was fun. Yeah. Loved it. Talk to you soon. <laughs>